Welcome to the Wellness and Wanderlust podcast. We're here to demystify wellness and help you add a little adventure to your life. Tune in for a new episode every week where we'll hear from incredible guests and talk about ways to be happier and healthier in our new normal. I'm your host, Valerie Moses. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to Wellness and Wanderlust. It is so hard to believe that we've been doing this for six months now. That's right, it has been six months since the launch of this show and I am so grateful to have you here no matter whether you have been here since the very beginning or this is your first time tuning in. I wanna thank you for being part of such an incredible community. I am so grateful to keep getting to do this every single week and getting to connect with so many amazing people through this show, both listeners and guests. Now at the time of this recording, I am really excited to share that I am halfway vaccinated. So I received my first Moderna shot a couple of weeks ago, and it finally feels like there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I am so grateful to the scientists and healthcare workers out there who have made this possible. You guys are real life superheroes. My experience was pretty easy for those of you who haven't gone through the process yet. I barely even felt the actual shot when it went in. So if you're worried at all about needles, it really was not bad at all. Now I did feel some pain at the injection site for a couple of days, but it really wasn't any worse than the tetanus booster I had back in November. So I know that the second shot tends to have more serious side effects. So I'll be sure to share my experience here for that as well in a couple of weeks. Now, vaccines, of course, are a personal choice, but I highly, highly encourage everyone to do their part so that we can start to live our lives again. We've all experienced loss in the last year. We've lost loved ones. Some are experiencing unemployment, loneliness, disconnection from our friends. We've had good times that we haven't really been able to celebrate and bad times that we haven't really been able to mourn. COVID has taken something from everyone. And I am so grateful for the miracle of science so that we can try to move forward and this disease can't take from us the way that it has in the last year. Of course, let's not forget to wear our masks, wash your hands, bring your hand sanitizer. Don't go totally overboard when you're getting back to normal. There are still variants out there and we can't let ourselves become totally complacent. But when it's time to get your vaccine, I very highly encourage you to do so. And of course, if you have any questions about my experience, feel free to shoot me a DM, Wellness and Wanderlust blog on Instagram, or shoot me an email at Valerie at wellnessandwanderlust.net. I'm happy to share my experience. So shifting gears, this week's guest is someone that you are really going to enjoy hearing from. Martha Tettenborn is a registered dietitian and certified primal health coach based in central Ontario, where she has been practicing for more than 30 years. A few years ago, Martha was diagnosed with stage one ovarian cancer, and during that time, she began to really study the metabolism of cancer. She wound up implementing a ketogenic diet during her chemotherapy and targeted fasting. And her story is absolutely incredible as to how these two things really worked for her. So she is the author of Hacking Chemo, Using Ketogenic Diet, Therapeutic Fasting, and a Kick-Ass Attitude to Power Through Cancer Treatment. And I can speak to this firsthand. She does have this kick-ass attitude. You are going to love hearing from her. Her book is not only informative, but it is also incredibly inspiring. And I cannot wait for you to hear Martha's story in her own words. So without further ado... Let's dive into this week's conversation with Martha Tettenborn. Hi, Martha. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hello, Valerie. It's really nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to meet you as well. I absolutely loved your book and I would love for you first to introduce yourself, tell our listeners a little bit about you. Sure. I am Canadian, a registered dietitian living in central Ontario, and I have been a dietitian for 35 years, working in a variety of different areas of nutrition. I done hospital and home care and private practice, and I spend most of my time now in long-term care, specializing in gerontology. But in the last few years, I have been more interested in the um, private practice aspect, um, following my interest into low-carb, healthy fat nutrition, which of course is absolutely not where I trained. (laughs) Um, I trained, I started university in 1980, you probably weren't even born yet, but that was the year of the McGovern Commission when the whole United States got sort of shifted into... um, the concept of a low-fat diet being healthy for everybody, the entire population. And it was considered cutting-edge knowledge at the time. I mean, nutrition in itself is a pretty young science, but this was thought to be the be-all and end-all. So that's how I practiced for probably the first 25 years and um, really wasn't that successful in helping, truly helping people. I I can say that it wasn't until I kind of opened my mind and opened my eyes to the alternative of uh, fat not being evil and that um, perhaps our standard American diet really wasn't um, good for us, that I really um, started understanding that I could help people in a different way. So I took some extra certification through the Primal Health Coach Institute to get my Primal Health Coach certification to add on top of being a dietitian. And that's kind of where I've been, the direction I've been going the last few years. That's incredible. I know that the that the low fat diets were a fad when I was growing up as well. You know, you would always hear about these low fat diets and that was how people would lose weight. It was the healthiest way to go. And people really are, even just now, only starting to realize that fats can actually be healthy and can actually be good for you. How did you first, you know, get into that low carb and high fat type of diet and, you know, start to promote that? Well, it probably started with me because I have fought with the same 20 to 30 pounds, probably 20 pounds most of the time, for most of my adult life, ever since, well, even before I had kids, but certainly since I've had kids and my kids are like almost 30. So (laughs) it's been a while. And, uh, and I mean, I wasn't successful myself using a low fat um, diet for healthy eating, you know, for, for weight loss and that kind of stuff. So I, I just went looking for other things. And of course, in the last 20 years, though, the entire world has opened up to online knowledge. And, you know, it's so much easier to research things and look things up. And I, I became aware of this alternate universe of low carb, healthy fat nutrition, and that there was actually some, you know, renegade dietitians that were out there that were promoting this. And of course, Dr. Atkins had been around like in the seventies and eighties. And like all dietitians, I was really happy to trash Dr. Atkins and that whole, you know, crazy eat your bacon and butter sort of concept. But once I was more willing to, um, to look past the training and, look into what was actually happening, like why the entire world or certainly the, the uh, world that ate 
like North Americans, why we were all developing heart disease and why we were all getting overweight and why we were all developing high blood pressure. And I mean, Alzheimer's disease is rampant and inflammatory diseases are rampant and, you know, celiac and gluten insensitivity seems to be going through the roof. And like none of these things existed when I started out. And certainly when I was a kid, you know, in the seventies and eighties, there might've been one or two overweight people in a room, you know, in a classroom or something like that. Not, not anything like you see nowadays. And so something was really wrong. And it just, that's kind of what prompted me to go looking further. And that's when I really got into the concept of um, the, you know, processed foods and sugar, and in particular, the hydrogenated vegetable oils and the industrial seed oils, the factory produced uh, seed oils, and the, the health issues of, of those things, which are, they're, they're so not part of our ancestral diet. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it so crazy that people don't see that, but it may seem second nature that, you know, what our ancestors ate should be, you know, what we are eating. But I think so many people will overcomplicate it and take it to the extreme. And I see with the standard American diet, when I am eating like that, I feel that brain fog. I do not want to get out of bed. I, you know, you feel the difference once you start eating in a different way. Now you experienced a cancer diagnosis a few years ago, and this diet actually got you through that. Um, Do you want to tell listeners a little bit about that journey for you? Sure. Yeah. So I had already taken the Primal Health Coach certification and I had started a private practice using the low carb approach. And uh, in the summer of 2018, I discovered that I had a huge ovarian cyst in my abdomen at the time that they did the ultrasound and kind of discovered it. I discovered it by laying down on my stomach to do a plank. And suddenly there was this bulge in, you know, hard bulge in my belly that had never been there. So I knew there was something going on right away. But um, it was already 16 centimeters across when they found it. So that's about what is that, about six, seven inches. (laughs) Um, And, uh, but it was just a big fluid filled cyst and nobody thought anything much of it. So it took a couple of months of going, you know, it was summer, right? So I mean, everybody's on holidays and uh, it took a couple of months, but I got eventually in and had it surgically removed through a laparoscopic incision. So the little one inch incision sort of thing, which meant they had to rupture it and then deflate it and then pull it out. And that was my decision because none of us thought it was cancer. And then six days later, I got a call that said, you know, come in and talk to the surgeon, bring your husband, you know, see you tomorrow morning. And I knew right away what that meant. So, so yes, I ended up being diagnosed with stage one ovarian cancer And um, that sort of rocked my world because I had been so very healthy up until that point. In fact, I was really smug about the fact that I was so healthy for, you know, 58 years of age. A couple of years prior to that, I had flown to Peru and done the four-day traditional Inca Trail hike up over the mountains and to Machu Picchu and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, I was pretty confident in my own strength and in my own health. And then suddenly I got sidelined by this diagnosis. So it, um, it hit me on a number of levels, <laughs> including like rocking my identity sort of thing, but it certainly sent me off on a different path. <laughs> 
Absolutely. I mean, that has to be such a scary diagnosis too. What was the recovery process like and how did a ketogenic diet kind of factor into that? Well, I had to go off and see an oncologist and the suggestion was that I go in for a second surgery and have a full hysterectomy. So that was planned. But I was also highly recommended to have chemotherapy because they had ruptured the cyst in my abdomen. And so there was the potential for a spill of cancer cells into my abdomen. And ovarian cancer is... um, is often, I was incredibly lucky. I was one of the 25% or so of women who got caught early stage because most 75 to 80% of women with ovarian cancer are diagnosed as stage three or four when the prognosis and the treatment is much more difficult. So they said I really should do chemotherapy. And I was terrified of chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is poison. (laughs) And I mean, I'm incredibly drug naive. I probably take half a dozen Tylenols in a year. You know, like I I just, I take nothing. I'm, that's why I say I'm always smug about the fact that I was so healthy. Nothing ached and, you know. So I started doing a whole lot of research. And I mean, I'm kind of a nerd that way anyways, but I started researching into what I, could do in terms of chemotherapy. And that's when I discovered that there's this entire field of cancer metabolism study that I didn't know existed. We all consider cancer to be a genetic disease, and that's the way I was trained. And basically, as a dietitian, you just helped people to get through the cancer treatment whatever way you could. You gave them whatever worked that they could handle within the side effects of the treatment and or the tumor itself. But the concept that you could actually impact on cancer's ability to grow by how you fueled your body, or even that cancer had a different metabolism than healthy cells, was unknown to me. And um, And it turns out it was unknown to most people for the last 80, 100 years. And it absolutely blew my mind that, you know, I mean, I'm a dietitian. How come I didn't know this stuff, right? And so none of the establishment dietitians, then, you know, the hospital and the cancer centers and stuff, they don't seem to be doing anything about cancer nutrition or or cancer metabolism. So that's when I went down this rabbit hole of of learning about this research and, And the work that's been done in the last 10 or 15 years on this, as it has sort of been rediscovered. And that's what started me into looking at a ketogenic diet. So taking a low carb diet further into ketosis, where you actually impact on the the fuel source that's available for your body, that you you could fuel your body with ketones instead of, of glucose and the impact that that has on your cancer. I, you know, and it's funny in in your book, I really, this line resonated with me about how there's really no money to be made and telling people to cut out the sugar and to be changing their diet. It's not, you know, as profitable as maybe the pharmaceuticals. So I found that to be really interesting, but I had always heard that cancer possibly feeds in general, that sugar really is kind of poison to our bodies as well. Um, So I thought that was really interesting that some of the research is now starting to really go into that. So you were already, you know, following a low carb diet. Did you still experience any of that keto flu that people experience kind of going into that or 
No, I, I was really well fat adapted. Um, I've been doing low carb into, you know, verging on to keto for a couple of years. So it didn't take much for me to um, pivot into full on ketosis. I enjoyed Christmas. And then the moment Christmas was over, and I was within a week or two of starting chemotherapy, I went onto a strict ketogenic diet, and I stayed in ketosis for the entire period of time, the five months or so that I was in chemotherapy. But what I really found that was different was the fasting that using actual periods of fasting during your chemotherapy treatments could make a significant difference to your side effects and how you experience side effects. That was the part that truly blew my mind. It was um, based on the work of several really key researchers. One is Dr. Thomas Seyfried in Boston, who has done a lot of research into the the disordered metabolism of cancer, and also the work of Dr. Walter Longo in California, who um, specifically looked at fasting and chemotherapy. And he did the research to prove that fasting through your chemo treatments does not make the chemotherapy any less effective. If anything, it makes it more effective because your cancer cells are being stressed by the, the ketogenic diet. They can't get the fuel that they want. They can't get the insulin and the growth factors that they want in order to be able to grow themselves. And, you're, and yet your regular healthy cells respond to fasting by down-regulating and becoming more um, quiet. They, they go into kind of a maintenance mode waiting for their fuel to come back. And, and that's an ancestral thing. We've been doing that for millions of years. All animals do that. So I call it stealth mode, where your healthy cells go into stealth mode. And because chemotherapy is basically a poison, it's a medication that is targeted at the markers of fast metabolism. And the reason that that works is because cancer has no way to turn itself off. That's one of the hallmarks of cancer. It cannot downregulate like a healthy cell can. So once you downregulate your healthy cells, it's almost like the cancer's got a, you know big red lights on it. It's going, you know, here I am, hit me. Um, and your and the chemotherapy just bypasses your your regular cells and goes straight for the go straight for the cancer. So you have less side effects because your regular cells are not being impacted as much by this, this medication. In a, in a healthy adult body, we don't have very many cells that are actually still actively growing when you think about it. I mean, we, we grow through, you know, pregnancy and uh, childhood and adolescence and so on. But, but an adult, we, we do a lot of maintenance, but the cells that are still actively manufacturing new material are things like our hair follicles all over our body. The bone marrow, where we create all the components of our blood, like white blood cells and red blood cells and platelets and so on. And the lining of our, our breathing tract and our digestive tract, where we're constantly turning over new cells. So those are the parts of our body that tend to get hit with side effects when you have chemotherapy. And those are the ones, particularly the GI tract, that is really protected by doing the fasting through chemotherapy. I can say that I had six chemo treatments of a medication that is supposed to be pretty hard on you, um, two, two medications, and I never experienced any significant nausea. I never vomited, other than when I was choosing to miss a meal, I never missed a meal. And in fact, I never missed making a meal. 
I was, I'm the cook in my house and I like it that way. And, um, I would get up and it might just be bacon and eggs, but I would get up and I'd make a meal and, you know, then crawl back into my chair. So yeah, it was pretty amazing. That's incredible because, you know, I've had people in my life with cancer and seeing, you know, the symptoms and everything that people go through during chemo, you want to help. And, you know, so to have something that is free for all of us to use that, that any, not anyone, but a lot of people can do that we have fasting at our fingertips. I think that's such a great resource for a lot of people. Now, is there ever a time it's not a good idea for someone maybe going through chemo? Um, yes. If if somebody was in the advanced stages of cancer where they're experiencing what's called cachexia, which is the, the significant wasting of muscle tissue, um, cachexia is not just about not getting calories. It's, it's actually there's other processes going on there that cause the advanced muscle wasting, but that's not a time to be putting yourself on a, a really restricted um, diet. And, and really like if your body tells you it's not a good thing, then you need to listen to your body, but this isn't a water fast. This is a supported fast. So, you know, you can use coffee and tea, um, bubbly water, regular water, hot water, whatever, turns your crank, you know, in terms of water, not nothing with artificial sweeteners, because you don't want to get that insulin response that even a sweetener can give you, you don't want your insulin up, because that just supports the cancer cells. And, and you don't want to do that. So keep your insulin as low as possible. Um, and bone broth, um, mm-hmm. using some broth provides you with a warm drink, it provides you with some, you know, a salty, savory food, and it really it can feel like a meal. So the book has, you know, guides, guidelines for making bone broth. It's pretty simple. These are things too, that are not like, they're not financially expensive. There's nothing you need to buy. I mean, buy it, you know, saving up your chicken bones from one month to the next is enough to make a pot of bone broth. (laughs) So it's something that is available to everybody, no matter how, um, you know, how, how strange your financial circumstances might be. I think that's so important too, because I think that's a huge deterrent for a lot of people, whether they're going through something or not, when changing your diet, I think it feels sometimes like there's this huge barrier that you have to buy, you know, the organic free range, perfect, perfectly sourced everything. And that can be really intimidating. I know. That's what I say. You, you, you do, do the best you can. And if the best it can means that you need to buy all your food at Walmart, then you buy what's available at Walmart. And if you have access to a farmer's market where you can buy priority, you know, primo sort of stuff, great, go for it. But for the most part, if you can, if, if nothing else, if people can reduce the amount of sugar intake to as low as you can live with and take the commercial industrial seed oils out of your diet so that's things like corn and soy oil and canola oil and uh and shortening and crisco and all those sorts of things take them and deep fried foods any sort of commercial Mm -hmm. deep fried foods take those things out replace that fat with olive oil butter ghee animal fat bacon grease for heaven's sakes Mm -hmm. but animal based or saturated plant fats or or plant fats that have come from the fruit of a plant like avocado or olives or coconut as opposed to something that's been pressed out of a seed using a whole bunch of chemicals 
just those two changes, just taking the sugar out and taking the industrial seed oils out, and you're 50% of the way to a better health already, even before anything else. And I think those natural sources of fat taste so much better. It's like so much more decadent to have something with some coconut oil or getting to use butter our whole lives. We're told too much butter is going to, you know, clog your arteries. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I've seen studies about, you know, in some of the Polynesian islands that people who are eating a very high fat diet of coconut, especially have way lower levels of heart disease than we have here. And, you know, I'm not a professional with that, but I think there's something to that. They did until Western food started appearing on their islands. Yeah. Yeah. When they ate seafood and coconuts, healthy, healthy, healthy. And then, you know, over time, things like fast foods and junk foods and stuff, that's what that appears everywhere. You know, I, I go down to um, Central American countries and I do community work like builds and things and I'll end up you know an hour into the mountains on the back of a pickup truck uh, over these you know logging roads and like crazy remote places in Honduras and Guatemala and stuff and there will be a little tienda in every one of those little villages around every corner and the main thing in that tienda is coca-cola and potato chips and like corn chips and things like that. Like it's it's as bad a food desert as a you know a ghetto in a big city. And you're you're up in now. Those people also have chickens in their backyard and they have you know avocados hanging off the trees and they have mangoes and papayas and wonderful stuff as well. But when you look at how remote they are and the fact that big American food corporations have got their crap products all the way into the middle of nowhere. (laughs) It's really scary, you know, because it impacts everybody's health in the whole world. Yeah. I feel like everywhere I turn, everywhere I've ever been, my joke is that I'm always confined the nearest McDonald's (laughs) and I don't want to, but it's certainly, yeah, we've certainly taken over and it's sad to see it. And I think that once you kind of get out of that healthy way of eating, um, you know, I've, I've gone in waves with different diets and things like that throughout my life. And I find I feel the best when I'm eating very clean, very, you know, low sugar stuff that grew out of a ground or came from an animal, but not, you know, basically shopping the perimeter of the stores is when I feel the best. But usually getting into that, whether, um, whether I was going the paleo route or kind of a plant-based route. I found that I felt a little hungover at the beginning, kind of coming from that standard American diet. And I'm sure that many people experience that. So what's a good way to kind of shift into whether they're going into ketosis or even just a lower carb model to not completely feel hungover at the beginning and get discouraged and give up? Yeah. You know, it's about fuel partitioning. Like we, it's our birthright to be able to, um, to burn both sugars and ketones and fatty acids. Like we're, it's part of what makes us so incredibly versatile and resilient as, as a species is that we have all these various abilities to burn fuels. But the way that we, um, the way that we eat is so carbohydrate based and, and particularly like we never go more than two hours without eating a lot of people. We're not capable of it is that, 
our, our metabolism has basically mothballed everything that was designed to burn fatty acids and ketone bodies and these other fuels. And we only have glucose burning pathways in our body. So when you suddenly re remove that fuel from your system and start giving it an alternate fuel, but the, the metabolic pathways, the, the actual chemical pathways that use those fuels, they don't exist yet. You have the blueprints in your genes. And I mean, with the signal of this is the fuel coming in, your body will make them, but you have to give it a couple of days, right? So moving into ketosis or moving into a low carb lifestyle, I don't, you know, ketosis is sort of the far extreme of that, but moving into a lower carb lifestyle kind of um, in stages is probably a much better way to ease yourself into it. And I, I cover that in the book too. I, in the, the keto diet section, I say, here's what you do the first two weeks and here's what you do after that, because you really don't want to throw somebody into a full-on keto flu. You, you can feel like you've been hit by a truck. You don't have any energy because you have no way to burn what you're putting in. Right. So starting by just reducing the um, first of all, the sugar, like we talked about, and then taking most of the grains out. That's the next step. So taking out the high starch breads, rice, pasta, and getting your starches and your sugars from natural vegetable and fruit sources. That's probably the first step. It, to go into actual ketosis, like to take your carbohydrates low enough to actually be um, encouraging your body to produce ketones, you usually have to take out most of the starchy vegetables and the fruit as well. So you end up with the lower carb vegetables, the above ground vegetables. So you take out the potatoes and the sweet potatoes and the bananas and the pineapple and all those sort of high sugar tropical fruits and, and root veggies and stuff. But you can certainly start with those things still in your diet and just take out the grains, take out the breads and the cereals and the pasta and the cookies and the rice cakes and you know all of the the grainy stuff that's probably the best place to start and then we have to get over the irrational fear of fat and be willing to put some fat calories back into your diet because that's where the satiety or the the um, fullness will come from is having enough fat calories and that doesn't mean you go nuts with fat it just means that we have to rethink how we have been conditioned for the last 50 years to think that fat is evil and it's not. We evolved eating fat and we have to get back to that. I honestly can say when I'm eating higher fat, I feel, you're right, I feel a lot more full after a meal. Um, I also feel like I don't get sick as often. I, I think it just has a, a really positive effects. And, you know, again, it's kind of nice to eat, you know, once you get past the idea of, you know, well, I should never have butter or having ghee, you know, it really, it, it makes a difference. It, and it, it adds, it definitely adds flavor to the foods. I think way more than canola oil and any of that. Oh, it's delicious. I mean, all of those industrial oils have been deodorized and, you know, and bleached and solvent extracted and all kinds of, I mean, you just use the words and it sounds horrible, but the, no, there's no flavor to them at all. Yeah. I find that when I, when I've been eating extremely clean and then I have something processed that has one, it, it tastes so artificial once you finally have it and it doesn't taste like it's real. I think even as you said in the book, it's like a food like substance. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know years ago, Michael Pollan put out a book and his, 
his tagline was seven simple words. And I've added one more. He says, eat food. Mm -hmm. I, I like to say eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. That's kind of his, his tagline. But the concept is not these artificial food-like substances that, you know, are supposed to kind of look like food, but really they come from a factory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I would ask as well, for many of our listeners, they may be plant-based, maybe fully vegetarian or vegan, or maybe they just have a very heavy plant diet. What suggestions do you have for them to live low carb? Can they do, I know that keto can be kind of challenging for them. Can they kind of get close to it? What are your thoughts if they're not eating a lot of meat, for example? It gets harder to be in a ketogenic diet that is going to meet all your nutritional needs without eating some animal foods. If somebody is willing to use um, eggs, for example, you can get all kinds of nutrition from eggs. Um, often people who are vegetarian are willing to consider something like oysters um, or mussels because they don't have a brain or a nervous system. Some people are willing to be a pescatarian and eat some fish. Lots of people are lacto-ova vegetarians and will use dairy. Those are all sources that contain animal fats and animal-based proteins and some of the nutrients that are really hard to get if you're not using animal-based products like the vitamin B12 and zinc and iron and so on in forms that are, are bioavailable to our bodies. So if you're do, trying to do a keto diet as a vegan, you, you end up spending a lot of time and energy using things like chia seeds and hemp hearts and some of the lower carb type seeds. I'm not an expert on that. And I would find it really difficult to, to encourage somebody to do that because there's just so much evolutionary evidence that we are high order carnivores in terms of our digestive tract and in terms of our cellular metabolism and our high acid stomachs and our short bowels and all the other things that are kind of proof that we were designed to be animal eaters. So, you know, people, people say nutrition is like the only field of science that doesn't seem to build on the history of what came before. You know, we just seem to keep going off on these crazy tangents. But when you look back at two and a half million years of human evolution. Like we were, we were hunters. We were the primates who hunted. We came down out of the trees and we went out on the savanna and we killed animals. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a place for plants in our world. There, you know, there definitely is, but there's also a place for animals and to be your best. I think people need to find a way to, to include some animal foods whether that's the, you know, nothing died for me to eat this, as in dairy products and egg, you know, sterile eggs sort of thing, or the, the idea of the eating the lower order animals like fish and mussels and seafood and stuff. So it's pretty hard to do as a vegan. Yeah, I remember going through the Whole30, you know, as an elimination diet. And I'm not a vegetarian. I do eat some animal products. But I remember it being really tough and you definitely did need to add some of that in like a little bit more because um, you weren't going to stay full. You weren't going to get enough of what you needed. And I remember they did suggest to those who are vegan, you know, this just might not be the right thing for you. It's going to, you know, you're not going to be able to find, you know, really anything that's going to work. So I do think considering some of those animal products definitely makes sense, especially if it's well sourced and if you 
you know, if that's something that people worry about at all is to really be looking for maybe the ethically sourced or what have you, but the lower order as well, that definitely makes sense. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for um, regenerative agriculture and using your dollars to support industry where, um, where animals are being raised right. It's not, it's not about animal agriculture being a bad thing it's about how how we do it is it is not a good way to do it so if you can find and again this this sounds very entitled because it involves not you know buying your food in a financially readily available way for a lot of people but if if you can find chickens for example who have lived a really happy life you know, out on grass or whatever from a farmer and you know that they've had a really happy summer and then one really bad day, basically. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and I mean, that's, I do live in a rural area and I'm lucky enough to know the farmers around here and I can go to my farmer and buy my meat from them. And I know that their animals have had a really happy life and one really bad day, you know, yeah. um, really bad moment actually probably and and that's the best that we can do and i really think that if animal foods are eaten with a sense of gratitude for the life of the animal and for the um the the source of of our connection to nature and our natural world then there's nothing wrong with eating animals this this is how we evolved I completely agree with that. I know many of the native cultures always gave thanks to the animals, whether they were going to use them to keep warm for food, what have you. And I, I think that's a great idea now. I, I do sometimes feel a little bit of a sense of guilt if I'm eating, you know, when I'm eating animal product after I was at a farm earlier that day. But, you know, to be able to think about it in those terms, I think helps the situation a lot. Yep. Yep. Just think about them having a really happy life in one bad day. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, something else I'd like to ask you about too in your book, you talked about you know your journey through chemo, the treatment process. And I was really inspired by the outlook that you took throughout the process. I grabbed a quote from your book that I really liked about how a lot of times when someone is going through that process, they might either take on a victim mentality or they might take on that battle warrior mentality. And you had something kind of a little bit different than that. And you said that just because something is damaged doesn't make it terrifying or evil it's just damaged. Most damaged things, whether they be inert objects or emotions or people, are really just in need of being fixed, repaired, and healed. That that line really resonated with me. And I'd love to know kind of what kept you motivated throughout your treatment. Um, yeah, it, it meant a lot to me to not, well, to not be a victim, um, mm-hmm. to not feel like I was in a fight. Um, because that just stimulates stress hormones and that's not where you want to be either. So I worked really hard to feel connected to what I call spirit, like connected to the universe, connected to that universal love and life energy that's out there. People have different names for it. I mean, I was raised in a traditional Christian family and still am very much. And so, you know, in my world, you can refer to that as God, but lots of people just refer to it as the universe. And I refer to it that way often as well, that we need to come at the whole process from a position of love, not fear, not anger, not 
self-blame or anything like that. One of the things that really resonated with me as I learned more about cancer is that cancer is not a foreign invader. People think of it as being this invader, right? That has to be, you know, annihilated and, and that it's taking over. And But really cancer is just yourself. Like it's your own cells, but they've lost their way. They're, they're on a different path and it's not healthy for the whole organism. And so you need to still love it because it's still part of you, but you need to let it go. You know, it's, I, I compare it to that Marie Kondo decluttering sort of thing where, you know, you look at something and does it spark joy? And if it doesn't spark joy, you thank it for its role in your life and you let it go. And it's like, that's kind of where I saw my cancer. It's like, you were part of me, but now you need to go. And so the chemotherapy, I mean, it's interesting because I didn't know I had cancer until after the tumor was gone, right? Yeah. And so I never had to live in that situation of knowing that there was this thing inside me that was, you know, growing while I was in the process of trying to get treatment and stuff. But I had the situation where there could be rogue cancer cells, just individual cells floating around and they could land anywhere in my peritoneal cavity and, and seed other tumors, which is what ovarian cancer is, is famous for doing. So I was doing chemotherapy in order to sort of kill any rogue cancer cells that were in there. That So my doctor described it to me that, you know, you can't know that the cells are there they may or may not be there. You can't see them. And you can't see that they're gone after we do the chemo. Like you're, you're doing this on faith sort of thing. You know, it's all invisible. And that kind of struck me too, that I was doing this as an, kind of as an act of faith. And again, as an act of self-love, as much as chemo is poison and, and I was terrified to do it, but it was also something that I needed to do. So when I wrote the book, um, I wanted to keep the aspect of attitude and spirit in my title, right? So the book, I called it Hacking Chemo because it's like biohacking. You're, it's, about, um, it's about using a traditional therapy, but using other modalities to impact on it. And so I, I used the word kick-ass attitude in my subtitle to try and not battle and not fear but to be in control and to to be the one to say cancer's not controlling me i'm in control of this journey and i'm going to make it the best i can be and come out the other end the best i can be and that's sort of where the whole kick-ass attitude came from i loved the title of the book i found the book to be so inspiring and practical at the same time and i think that we don't always give attitude enough credit for you know, the role it can play, you know, you talk about the law of attraction in the book as well. And I really do feel whether people believe that you can or cannot manifest better outcomes for yourself. I think if we don't have the positive attitude going in, then we can't make those concrete steps with cutting out sugars or fasting or really doing any of the things that are going to help us through the process. Because if we don't think it's going to work, then why bother? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's um, the beautiful thing about the ketogenic diet and the fasting protocol is that it's something that you do have control over because it's easy to feel powerless 
once you get the diagnosis. I mean, I've talked to women who are, they're completely in control of everything else when it comes to their professions and they're, you know, they seem to be in control of their families. And then they get this diagnosis and it's just like they roll over and play dead and kind of go, okay, doc, do whatever you think is the best. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, 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 no. You're, you're, this is your life and your journey. And so, you know, wake up and take part in it. (laughs) Like, yeah. And I do believe in the law of attraction. I do believe that you have a lot of power over over your destiny and over what you bring into your life experience. You know, and, and I mean so many people say, oh, you know, cancer was a cancer was a gift. Cancer was whatever. You know, like they they'll say those things and it's like, yeah, you know, I, I could have very well gone on and had my whole life without cancer. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. But It did come into my life and I really think that I have made the absolute best of it. And, and with the things that I found out, I just had this passion to share it because, because people didn't know and you can be powerful. You can have this huge impact. The, the original title of the book was going to be powerful beyond measure. And that comes from the Marianne Williamson poem or quote that says, you know, a lot of us don't fear that we're powerless. We feel that we fear that we are powerful beyond measure because with that comes responsibility, you know, (laughs) to let our light shine. And that spoke very deeply to me. It didn't turn out to be the best title for the book, but it's certainly on a personal basis. It spoke very deeply to me. And so that's why the blog is called powerful. My, my website, blog that I started during cancer treatment is called Powerful Beyond Measure. And my Facebook page is called Powerful Beyond Measure. It just didn't end up being the title of the book. (laughs) I I love that quote too. Uh, Marianne Williamson is amazing. And I I really, I could not agree more. I, I do think that the law of attraction, it, it does, you know, it does manifest itself in our lives. And when I believe something. It may not look the way that you expected it to, but I do think that I I do think it's a very real thing. Now, I think it's really inspiring as well that you wrote this book, that you're able to help others and that you you really have made the best of a situation that it's scary. And I think for a lot of people, they might not be able to get through it in the same way. And I'd love to know when you wrote the book, what are you hoping that people will be able to get out of it? I hope that people can number one, not feel like a powerless victim, but also that they can impact on how the cancer grows through nutritional interventions by not feeding the cancer the things that it wants, but also that that chemotherapy doesn't have to be so awful if you use these nutritional interventions that you can actually protect yourself from the side effects. And I have coached some other women through their chemotherapy as well. It works best with a chemotherapy that happens every two to three weeks, which is common for the hormonal cancers that we have a a chemo treatment about every three weeks because the drugs take about three weeks to process through your system. And I just wanted more people to know about it. It's scary because I'm stepping out of my, a bit out of the the status quo in terms of my profession, <laughs> um, but I have, a, I have a unique perspective of being a veteran dietitian and a cancer survivor and a chemotherapy, you know, having experienced chemotherapy and already being a low carb dietitian and coach and everything. So... I had a friend who, when I, she had gone through breast cancer and she was one of the first people I told. 
And she said to me, you know, Martha, it's like everything in your life that you've done so far has brought you to this point to go forward as the keto cancer dietitian. And I kind of thought, oh, keto cancer dietitian. Geez, I like that. <laughs> and that was sort of the start of the, of the concept that I could share this and I could make other people aware of it because of what I bring to it, which is unique, which is the dietitian and cancer survivor sort of combination along with the low carb experience. So that's where I came from. I think that's incredible and it's so inspiring. And I think people really will be able to take a lot away from it. Now, is there anything, you know, when you got your diagnosis that you wish you knew then that you know now? No, not really. I mean, when you get a diagnosis like that, especially when it comes out of the blue, which, you know, most of them do, you need time to process it yourself before you can tell anybody else. I think that's something I would let people know is I knew probably right from the get-go that I would be fairly open with what was what I was going through I mean I was going to go bald it's not like you were going to be able to miss it right Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I had to first I had to process it myself and then I had to tell the people who are really close to me and what I discovered is that when you tell people that you have a cancer diagnosis they absorb that information in different ways Mm-hmm. Some people will have to step away from you. And it's not because they're bad people, but there's something about someone they know going through cancer that they just can't cope with. And it might be something in their own history or, you know, their own fears or something, which doesn't make them a bad person. But I had people that just kind of faded away out of my life. And then I had other people that surprisingly stepped into those spaces who I made of might have considered like acquaintances prior to that. And then they stepped forward and, and were there for me. And it's like, it was, it was really amazing. But when you first tell somebody, whatever the reaction is, you have to absorb it. Like I almost had to tell people and then go, but it's okay. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not, you know, it's not so bad because it's stage one and it's, you know, and I feel great and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, people would kind of say, well, how are you, you know, when you'd see them? And of course, you're bald and you have no eyebrows. And And I'd say, like, I'm freaking awesome, right? Like, let me take control of this conversation Mm -hmm. right now and steer it in the direction of positivity. Because you know what? I'm in control of this. I have found something that works for making the cancer treatment less damaging and easier to tolerate. And for two and a half weeks out of every three week cycle, I'm awesome. I'm just like life went on almost like normal. It just was pretty amazing. So I'd see people around town and, and, you know, this before the pandemic. So of course you're out Mm. and about, and it's winter in Ontario. So, I mean, I was wearing a toque all winter. Nobody knew I was bald underneath the toque most of the time. And so I could, you know, I could go in and out of grocery stores and banks and stuff and people just didn't really even know, right? And I mean, I'd wear a toque at work all day, which was a little weird, but uh, that was just, I I wasn't into wigs and my head was cold all the time. It was winter. (laughs) So, yeah, I guess that's what I, one of the things I'd want people to know. And also um, that you need to, again, approach it from a, uh, a perspective of love. 
self-love. Don't blame. Don't get paralyzed by fear. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a journey. I love that. I think your perspective through all of this is so inspiring. And I think a lot of listeners will feel that way as well. Um, now we'll get in just a minute um, to where everyone can get your book, but I would love to shift gears a little bit and ask you a few of our rapid fire questions that we ask all of our guests on the show. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Now, what is your top wellness tip? I guess I sound like I'm repeating myself, but I guess my top wellness tip is love yourself. Don't be critical. Be positive. Always look for the positive. You know, you may have the most, you know, wrinkled up, crinkled up, achy body, but I mean, I'm sure there's something wonderful and you need to find it and you need to, um, you need to love the wrinkly bits and always feel positive. You can't make positive changes from the perspective of hating yourself or being critical of yourself. So yeah, loving yourself, I think is the top wellness tip and that will change your paradigm and that changes everything. That's my favorite tip as well. I I really, (laughs) yeah, I really do think it makes all the difference. Now, where is your favorite travel destination? That's so hard. I want (laughs) to travel everywhere. I have been to Central America probably seven or eight times. Never as, well, sorry, once as a tourist, I think. Most of the time I go with a development organization and we end up way off in remote areas living with local families and stuff. And it's pretty, pretty awesome. Um, South America, Peru, I've been to, and we have family in Europe. So we do a lot of traveling in Europe, but I'll tell you, I, I want to travel the world. I mean, I'm one of those people that watches nomad YouTube videos and wishes I could live in a trailer. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, just about anywhere, I guess would probably be the answer. That's awesome. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Okay, I had to think about this one. I think I would be a snowy owl. And, you know, those all white owls, those spectacular all white owls. Yeah. We have them. Yeah, we have them around here. I have oh. one that lives about a mile from my house. And in fact, we found it on Sunday and, and my husband photographed it. It is stunning. Oh because snowy owls are majestic. They look like they're in control of their lives. And owls are wise right? That's the stereotype. But they're also silver and white. And I'm quite white um, on top. And, uh, and they're carnivores. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess in a lot of ways, I, uh, I, I think they're pretty, pretty spectacular. I think I could handle being uh, a snowy owl. I love that. And they're, they're keto too. They are. <laughs> and they, the cool thing is they, they're, they're daytime owls, not nighttime owls. They follow the light. So they come into southern, more southern climates um, or parts of the world, like central Ontario, in the winter because there's more light. And then as the days get longer, they will, um, they will migrate back up into the far north where the light is, of course, in, this, in the summertime. It's 24-hour light up there, right? So, yeah, so I think that's pretty cool, too, because light and sunlight is so important to us. That's amazing. Now, what is your number one favorite show to binge? This is a funny one because I haven't watched television for about 25 years. (laughs) (laughs) When my son was four and was sort of leaving the Sesame Street, Shining Time Station sort of um, realm, I didn't really like what 
he was likely to get into. So we turned off cable for about 10 years. And I have just completely lost the ability to watch television. So I watch a few YouTube videos if I'm, you know, knitting Mm -hmm. or something. Um, I watch lectures, documentaries, but I am totally incapable of binging. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably for the best. It's not the best habit. But that, yeah, that just happened years ago. So I, I, I sit around the, you know, the meal table at work with a bunch of people who start talking about what shows they've been binging on Netflix and stuff. And I'm just lost. It goes right over my head. It, you probably get a lot of time back, not, you know, cause I know you have a lot of different interests as well. And I'm sure. I don't know where people find the time to do this. I really yeah. don't. Yeah. Yeah. And so what is your favorite social distancing activity? Probably knitting. Yeah. I, I spend a lot of time working with my hands while I'm listening to things, when I'm listening to books or whatever. Um, I tend to always have something going in my hands. I quilted for many years. Um, and yet I hike. I, I love hiking and I live in a beautiful area. Yeah. And just my husband and I get in the car and we go looking for birds to photograph. You know, we just drive around. Let's say we saw the snowy owl on Sunday. So that's, that's been enjoyable for us to be, he took up bird photography sort of as a pandemic activity and it's a very challenging field of photography. So I'm the driver. We just cruise around <laughs> the back country roads and spend time together. And I've got, I've got my binoculars and he's got his camera and we go looking for birds. So that's, that would be one of the things I we've done to get through the pandemic. That sounds like so much fun and truly a challenge. Um, living in Central Florida, we have pretty high raptor population, and you cannot. It's very difficult to get a photo. Any of the birds, they'll fly away as soon as they see you. So I think that's so incredible um, to have that hobby. To um, you know, especially the snowy owl. I think that is so cool. It is. Yeah, they're they're absolutely spectacular. Absolutely. Now, where can our listeners find you, find the book, and connect with you? Okay. I have, I started blogging at the beginning of my cancer journey. And so I started a website at marthatettenborn.com. So it's just my name. Um, and the blog is there. There's information about the book. There's some um, evidence that, su- that supports the keto and fasting sort of approach to cancer. And I'm, I'm putting blogs up probably a couple of times a month. Some of us now is recipes and things like that. The book was um, released in November. It's called Hacking Chemo, Using Ketogenic Diet, Therapeutic Fasting, and a Kick-Ass Attitude to Power Through Cancer. And it's available on Amazon uh, as both an ebook and a print-on-demand paperback on all of the international platforms, so whatever country your listeners happen to be in. It's also available wider distribution through Apple Books and as, as an ebook um, and any of the ebook platforms, as well as Barnes and Noble, um, chapters in Canada, um, anywhere that, uh, that paperbacks are sold for the most part. The independent bookstores can order it in, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's got wide distribution it's starting to pick up the sales, but I would really, I just want people to get the message that they, they have options and you know, that this is a doable thing. So that was why I wrote the book. It's, it's about getting 
getting that knowledge into other people's hands. I think that's so inspiring and just so incredible. And I loved getting to read your story and all of the lessons you share in that. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and for sharing your wisdom with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to talk to you, Valerie. It was such a joy to meet Martha and to read her book. I was really, really inspired by her approach to cancer treatment and her focus on self-love throughout the process rather than, you know, that victim mentality or that fight battle mentality. And I felt like this was such an important read for anyone who is going through a difficult diagnosis right now. We didn't talk about this in our interview, but Martha's book also includes ketogenic recipes at the end, which includes a keto focaccia bread that I am dying to try one of these days. I've never really explored the keto lifestyle before, but I have experimented with paleo over the years and have found that lower sugar and you know fewer processed foods, I do feel a whole lot better. It makes a huge difference in so many aspects of my health. And our conversation certainly has inspired me to start cutting back on some of the sugars again in my own life. They can really creep back in even when you're eating relatively healthy. So I really enjoy talking to Martha and learning about how ketogenic living and fasting can help really alleviate some of the chemo symptoms and even help your cancer treatment overall. So I have linked all of Martha's information, including her book in the show notes. So be sure to check it out. Thank you so much for sharing a part of your day with us here at Wellness and Wanderlust. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you share on Instagram and tag me at Wellness and Wanderlust blog. You can also tag me on Twitter at Moses underscore says and let me know what you think of the episode. Please feel free to rate and review the show on whatever app you are listening on. And of course, if you have a topic you would like to see or a guest you'd like me to have on, shoot me an email at Valerie at wellness and wanderlust.net. Have a wonderful day and I will see you next week.